let's pray as we look forward to the hearing and preaching of God's Word. Oh Lord, our gracious God, we ask that you, you might be working amongst us, that you would teach us, that your servant's mouth would be guarded, that he would, would lessen and Christ would be magnified and lifted up, that the Spirit would work amongst us, that we might see means of grace effectual in our lives. So help us, help us to, to pay attention with hearts that are wrapped to your word, focused on Christ and his glory. For it's his name we pray. Amen. If you'll turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Turn your Bibles, if you're using a, a pew Bible there, it's page 878. You can turn to, tapping on your devices, getting there. Uh, while you're, you're getting to that uh, Location. I'll remind you that Acts is written to, to confirm the certainty that the Lord Jesus Christ is building his church. We've seen that Paul has uh, escaped the assassins, as we looked at last time we were together, and is now brought together and has a, another opportunity uh, to make a defense, an apologetic for the gospel. It's been noted this. This trial scene has a, kind of a threefold purpose that we're going to look at here in, in chapter 24. Uh, uh, Paul has the opportunity to defend himself against false charges before the highest authority in the province. He gets to continue the defense of Christianity before his Jewish opponents. And he, he gets to bear witness to Christ before this very Roman governor, uh, Felix, as we will hear as we read So follow along, listen to God's word. So read Acts 24, verse 1 through 27. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple But we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection 
of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul is continuing in his, his time before the, the Roman officials and under the uh, attacks of the Jewish religious leaders. You know, there's many things that we see here that are, uh, that are quite in, engaging and grab the heart. And uh, There's warnings and there's, there's things that humble us. And maybe think, as I was working through this, uh, this chapter... Another passage kept coming to my mind, and, and another uh, Bible passage that, uh, that I find humbling, and even as an American today living, I, sometimes I find actually terrifying, and that's uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 26 through, uh, through 31. So if you'll indulge me, let me read yet another passage of Scripture that I think will impact. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You might think, well, why is that so terrifying to you, Pastor? Well, as I look at not only the world around us, but I look at history, and then I look back at, at my life, our lives, the nation we live in, uh, the whether we want to admit or not, the great empire, the, the pinnacle of what seems to be achievement of, of power, decadence, 
ease, pleasure, and safety, it is quite terrifying when we stand upon the realities of the truth that even even those who find themselves in need in America often still fit into this category of those who are amongst the wise, the powerful, the noble. We truly do. We have been given in God's great providence much to steward over. And it's terrifying to think that we might not be those who would boast in the Lord, but that we would boast in the greatness of our culture, nation, and land. And we're the little people. Think about those who who have been given much, those who have much power, much influence, those who we all look to, celebrities, whatnot, those who make great decisions, authority positions. We look around us, and I hope that we find ourselves crying out, O Lord Jesus, if it is not for you, how is it that we might be saved? So we look at our chapter here. I mean, what I want us to see what I want you to see as we work through is that powerful people also need to hear the gospel so they may repent and believe in Jesus. And just so we're clear, I'm not necessarily saying those powerful people, but I'm talking about us as Americans in this day and age. Those who are clearly more powerful than we are, but even ourselves as powerful people, we need the gospel. And praise the Lord that he in his good providence and perfect will is chosen to have it preached to us. We'll look at two simple things. Explaining the gospel to the courtroom and explaining the gospel to the governor. So explaining the gospel to the courtroom. Uh, Paul is once again accused now at trial before the, the leaders, the Roman leaders. He's, he's accused by them of multiple things, but their, their desire is to have Paul dealt with. They want to see Paul brought under the discipline of the Roman Empire. They realized they cannot accomplish what they want. Rome stepped in. Rome pulled Paul out. They can't come in. Their assassination attempts failed. They need Rome to do the dirty work. And so they're coming, and they are pushing against him. They're trying to use a little bit of the complexity of of the laws and the situation. You know, we're going through the, the Ten Commandments in our adult class in midweek, and at some point, I can't remember which one, I, I gave the illustration that a couple of years ago, uh, there was a congressional study done. Congress wanted to know how many laws exist in the country. Like, how many laws are there from, from local, state, federal? How many statutes are there? What do we have? And this, this group got set up. They started doing their work, and they eventually came back and said, it is impossible to give you an answer. Impossible. We, we looked at each area, and, and the amount of laws is so great, we can't even give you a guesstimate. That's how complex the legal system is here in the United States. Rome also had a great, powerful, complex law. And then, what do you have happening with these religious leaders? Not only are they seeking to bring the Roman law to bear in this trial, they're trying to bring also in their own laws. Think about what all is going on, how complex this is, so much so that these religious leaders decide that they need to bring with them a lawyer, one that, that is skilled and gifted because they, they really want to nail Paul. They don't want Paul to get out of this. They know he's a Roman citizen. These things have been asserted as we've been moving our way through Acts. There's this tension. 
We've talked about that and looked at it, the reality of how the Lord and his providence has given Paul these things, and Paul has asserted his rights as a Roman citizen, and God is using all these things, and Christ has, if you remember, promised to Paul that he was going to speak before leaders, kings, and that he'd be going to Rome. So Paul's in the midst of this. These things are coming. Tertullus, amongst the, the Jewish prosecutor, as it were, is, is attempting to, to nail Paul that he might be found guilty of great things. If you were paying attention as, as I was reading, which I know you were, you would have noticed Tertullius, the way he began this, it was like a courtroom drama. I mean, he just, just sinfully flattering Felix. These, these Jewish leaders hated Felix. And yet he told them, oh, we are so thankful for you, and you're such a wonderful leader. Will you just do this one thing for us and kill this annoying Paul? So he comes and he lies in the beginning in the way that he flatters Felix. But then he turns around, and not only is he he lying in his flatterous beginning, but in the very trial, all the accusations, everything that's brought to bear, he continues to lie. That's all he's doing. It's like Tertullius has been paid to come down, spin the yarn, say whatever you got to say. We got to get Paul. He can't leave. Can't let him get on a ship. Tertullius, what you see here is he goes on and in these lies, he brings three charges against Paul. So don't miss this. There's a, there's first, there's a personal charge against him. Uh, He says, Paul's a plague. Paul's a plague on the Jewish people. But, but Felix, great, great Felix. He's not only a plague on us. He's a plague on y'all. Like this guy, I mean, this is one of those guys you just want to just want to let disappear. Everywhere he goes, there's riots. He's turning the world upside down. And 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 now there was a little truth that we've been moving through Acts. And what happens when when God uses Paul when he begins to proclaim the gospel and and churches are being planted? There, there is generally some confrontation that happens, opposition to the gospel and the planting of these new churches. But but he. But he lies in saying that, that Paul is a plague. Paul is not a plague. Paul is a, a blessed tool of the Lord being used. And then the second lie he brings, he, he brings this charge, a, a political charge. He says, Paul, this Paul, this plague, he's coming in and he's, he's being seditious. He's, he's trying to, to root up rebellion, not only against us, but against you. Felix, he's trying to... He's trying to get folks to rebel against Rome. Now, this is an important one because because they can convince Felix that Paul is actually in any way being seditious, particularly even as a Roman citizen, that this might nail him. They can get him. So that's a big big charge he's bringing. So he's got this personal charge, political charge. The last thing is this this third charge, a doctrinal charge. Paul, Paul is profaned. He has profaned the temple. And we need you to do something about this, Felix. He has come in and and he has profaned our temple, all of our ways. Please step in. So then Paul gets up and has the opportunity after he simply gets the the head nod from Felix, who's in control of this, this courtroom, the governor. He nods at him and he gets to get up and it's his turn. And he, he, he responds in his defense in a way he, he comes at it, um, that does in, interact with these charges, but particularly you'll notice what Paul does is in his defense, he makes it clear in this setting, he proclaims the gospel. 
Again, Paul is like, I'm not going to allow this opportunity to get away. There are too many powerful people here not to hear the gospel. Paul isn't scattering, trying to get all these charges answered so that he can get off. That's not his, his number one concern. He's been told by Christ already, you're going to Rome no matter what. He's trusting in him. He's looking forward to that. And he takes his opportunity to speak the gospel to the courtroom. Paul's diffusing and refuting these charges as he does this very thing. And it's been noted by a commentator. We read this. I think that there's some, some truth to this, obviously. Do we detect a bit of holy sarcasm in Paul's closing statement? We might paraphrase it as Paul saying this. If I... If I have done anything evil, it is probably this. I reminded the Jewish council of our great Jewish doctrine of the resurrection. Remember, the book of Acts is a record of the early church's witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read in Acts one twenty-two this very thing. The Sadducees had long abandoned the doctrine and the Pharisees did not give it the practical importance it deserved. So... Paul, as the Spirit has inspired him to give his his defense, he gives the gospel, and he does it in such a way that it does come across like that. It comes across before the Jewish leaders and before Governor Felix and all that are there. He comes in, and God causes him to respond in such a way that he basically calls them out. Uh, Governor Felix, I'm here because I reminded these men of all the promises that are in our scriptures. I reminded them and told them of their fulfillment and they're mad about it. They're upset about it. But that's what they're mad about. It's the fulfillment of the reality that the Messiah has come. That yes, it's true, there is resurrection. And that comes through repentance and faith in Christ. And he's pointing these things. He's calling the Jewish leaders out. And even in the way he gives his defense, he's calling them to faith in Christ. And he's saying, come to faith in Christ because that is what, that is why you're here. You've been given these oracles, this truth that's before you. Believe the fulfillment, the prophecies. Stop being stubborn. And even as we look at the courtroom, I, I know we're probably not going to find ourselves in quite the same situation but I think it should encourage us that when we are in opportunities that we are amongst those who are powerful or or seem to be and have positions of authority let us not forget the importance of bringing the gospel to bear and how the Lord might use that to explain the gospel to the courtroom. And then, then we see explaining the gospel to the governor. So we leave the courtroom and, and Paul is brought in for a, a private audience with Governor Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And Paul gives the governor and his wife three compelling reasons why they need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Again, Paul is brought in there personally and what we have recorded is not Paul trying to work out some way to get out of out of the situation, like, hey, look, this is all bogus. I'd, I'd really appreciate if you'd release me. But Paul's drive, Paul's focus is to make sure that the governor and his wife understand the gospel and that they are clearly called to repentance and faith in Christ. That's his priority. Now we know providentially, as we read through here, there's some 
some context, some points of connection here. The governor is familiar with the way, as it's called. He is familiar with Christianity. He's familiar with this, this, this gospel. His wife, she's familiar with, with the ways of the Jews because she's Jewish. So Paul is even coming into a, a situation where, where the, the field's been plowed. This is not as if the first seeds are being planted. So he does, as I mentioned, these, these three things. Paul, he speaks the gospel clearly to this powerful Roman and his Jewish wife. And we can only imagine he does it in the same way he would have done it to someone in the marketplace, someone on the street, a sailor on a ship he was on. He's not afraid. He speaks boldly. So this first of, of several reasons he gives is this first one, Paul points out to, to Felix and, and Drusilla, they're sinners in need of a savior. That's kind of scary just right off the bat. Like, whew, you just told these people, this guy, this man who's holding your life in, in, in his hands, you just told him he's a sinner. Maybe you should have been more like Tertullus, you know, just told him whatever he wanted to hear. But Paul is not concerned about his life. Paul is concerned about the soul of, of this Roman leader. Has been noted. Think about this as, as one commentator has written. So back in 1973, one, one of the, the world's leading psychiatrists published a, a book called Whatever Became of Sin. This is back in 1973. So we're talking like 50 years ago. This leading psychiatrist noticed, why has sin disappeared? Where did, where's it gone? This, the reality and the concept of it. He pointed out that the very word sin has gradually dropped out of our vocabulary. The word along with the notion. We talk about mistakes, weaknesses, inherited tendencies, faults, and even errors. But we do not face up to the fact of sin. As a noted American writer and poet around the same time wrote, people are no longer sinful. They're only immature or underprivileged or frightened or more particularly sick. But a holy God demands righteousness. And that is the bad news. Yet the good news is that this same holy God provides his own righteousness to those who trust Christ Jesus, as we read in Romans chapter 3. We can never be saved by our own righteousness of good works. We can be saved only through Christ's righteousness made available by his finished work of salvation on the cross. Paul first confronts them with the reality that they're sinners. Then the second thing Paul does, the second reason he gives this compelling reasoning as he's, he's prayerfully desiring for the governor and his wife to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing Paul points out is the particular sin that has Felix and Drusilla in bondage. What it is particularly that the temptations that they continue to give, and not just that they are sinners in need of a Savior, but what it is that they are continuing to do. And he speaks of the lack of self-control. Now, context-wise, you just have to go out to the writings of history and you see the two of these individuals uh, lack of self-control would be a very kind way to put it. Um, 
I'll leave it to you to look up. Josephus and others who've written. But we'll just say these are, these are folks who worship pleasure. These are folks who worship self. As I've, as I've mentioned, these are selfites. They are of the religion of selfism. It is all about Felix. It is all about Lucilla. And there will become a time soon when they are called back here. As we touched on two years later, they get called back to Rome. And then we don't hear about them anymore. So it seems that even their lack of self-control became so rampant that even the Roman Empire could no longer put up with it in one of their leaders. And the third thing that Paul, Paul warns of, he tells Felix and Drusilla, the third thing he says is God's judgment is coming. It's coming. And that's true. And that's a reality. And only repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will save you or anyone else. This is, this is like evangelistic conversations to the powerful and the powerless. This is how we, the reality of how we talk to folks. We have to help them understand that sin is real. God is holy. Judgment's coming. But praise the Lord, there's forgiveness and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are kind of some of the basic things we cover. We pray the Spirit will use and, and work from there. So Paul continues speaking the gospel to, to Governor Felix and his wife as he's held for two years in prison. Two years. Felix procrastinating, bringing him around. And of course, we see here the Lord tells us he does it. It just so happens Paul is allowed to have all the visitors he wants. All the people can come and go. Because Felix, even though it's illegal, Felix is kind of hoping someone one day is going to walk up and say, uh, Governor, there's a package that's left in the hallway. If you'll just let Paul go, whatever's in the package is yours. He wants a payout. He wants a bribe. That's why he's keeping him around. How sad that is. He keeps bringing Paul in. Not to hear more about Christ, not to hear more about the gospel, but because he's hoping in those conversations that he might finally get Paul to to mention, you know, I'm connected to a lot of powerful people as well. What would it cost for me to get out of here? It's his worship of self and desire for pleasure and desire for, for more power. He wants these bribes, and that's why he keeps... Paul around procrastinating with a foolish thought that judgment will never come. Living like many of us do. Oh, judgment will never come. Those are, the, those are the fairy tales that children tell their parents that they'll do the right thing. God is not real. He does not keep accounts. And if he does, he's just the sweet old man upstairs. He gets it. He knows. He's okay with whatever my particular sins are. They're not really sins. It's kind of more of like we read earlier, like a sickness or a character flaw. But Paul is continuing and for two years, zero interest in playing this game. He wants to see Felix and his wife repent and believe. He's speaking the gospel to powerful people. And the saddest thing we read here is that in the first interactions, as Paul is boldly proclaim, proclaiming the gospel to them, Felix is terrified. He's terrified at what he hears. 
But even in being terrified, it does not drive him to repentance and faith. He is so calloused to the realities. His hope is not one in Christ, but one that he might receive that bribe. Procrastinating repentance and faith is a dangerous thing. It is a ludicrous game to play. Then we think about the the crazy times we live in. Another temptation we have is there are powerful people in our own country that have influence. And there is a temptation to become bitter and angry and to pray half the imprecatory psalms against our leaders. We, we pray for the destruction. We pray for their, their, their God making them impotent. And we don't finish with the prayers of, oh, Lord, but we do ask in your mercy that you would bring forgiveness and salvation. We read and say, yes, God's called us to pray for our leaders. And instead of praying, oh, Lord, would you give them wisdom? Would you pour grace out upon them that they might come to repentance and faith in Christ? Instead, we pray only that God would remove them or silence them or make them impotent in their, their ways that we don't agree with. It's fine to pray in precatory psalms, but pray the whole thing. It's fine to pray that God would cause justice to go forth, his justice. But dear saints, don't, don't have a heart that doesn't cry out for the lost, whether they're powerless or powerful. We trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords. And, as we touched on in the beginning, just the reality of the context we live in, the providence of the time we are in, we, to an extent, are, are the powerful people. Americans. Some of us more powerful than others. Some are given more responsibilities than others, have more authority than others. So let us be salt and light. Let us be faithful as God has called us to those roles that we've been given we might serve him in a way that brings him glory. Explaining the gospel to the courtroom, explaining the gospel to the governor. Let us remember that powerful people also need to hear the gospel so they may repent and believe in Jesus. And let us praise God that's true as we get to hear the gospel and trust in the Lord for forgiveness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together in safety to hear it read and preached and and to gather together for corporate worship. And Lord, even as we we hear this chapter, this recording of, of Paul as he had the opportunity to speak the gospel to these powerful people, Lord, we ask that it would be an encouragement to us as we, we see how you have worked to build your church and work throughout redemptive history to bring about all things to your glory. But Lord, at the same time, may it drive us to be those who would speak to, to those who frighten us because they are powerful or perhaps we even have a strange celebrity type feeling towards them. Uh, Lord, but also may our hearts be drawn to those that we see as powerless and perhaps care not about. May we speak the gospel to all of them and then be reminded that when we are in positions of authority, when we have power, may we not... May we not forget the importance of being like Christ. Let us be salt and light. Let us glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.